This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Jorn Werderlin. He is the co-founder of Linda Werderlin. Jorn, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. Good to speak to you. Yes, um, this this we, we we promise not to speak about, it, but I feel I have to speak about. It. This is our second show. We had a practice run that had some um, technical issues, but I think that we'll be better off this time. And I'm actually almost glad that show didn't run because it kept cutting out. It was hilarious. Like. I feel like there should be a video version of us like getting increasingly sweating, you know, <laughs> increasingly frustrated. <laughs> um, well, I mean, fortunately, I've completely forgotten about all of it. I have no recollection. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> so I want you to talk a little bit about your personal history because we're talking about Linda Verdlin, a brand which released their first watch 15 years ago, the same year in 2007 that a blog to watch started. And, you know, you were one of the companies that a blog to watch grew up with. Uh, but you now live in Portugal. Um, you are, you're Danish, correct? Yeah, that's indeed true. You're Danish. Up, grew up in Denmark. It's a Swiss watch brand. Help, help tie that all together. Where did you come from? And, and, and tell, talk about the starting of Linda Verdelin. Well, well, I guess we are to some extent, a, you know, a European watch company. So, uh, but to start out, I, you know, grew up in Denmark. I was born in 64 and uh, lived there uh, for the first 25 years of my life. And then I moved to England and uh, lived there for almost uh, the next 30 years. And uh, for the last couple of years, I've lived in Portugal. Um, so, so, you know, I've, I've been a bit around this continent at least. But the, the, the beginning of Linda Berlin is uh, in 2002 when Morton and I came up with the idea of having uh, mechanical timepieces with attachable digital instruments uh, for skiing and for diving. And uh, the, the the idea was something that we had, uh, uh, you know, sort of different experiences coming into Morton. He had designed a watch for uh, the Danish jeweler, George Jensen, where you could take the outer case off and change it for another outer case and strap so that you had one version for when you were out sailing and another version for when you were uh, not sailing. And I had various experiences uh, with skiing. I uh, broke my back in 96. Uh, after that, I skied a lot with guys. And more notably, I went to Canada to ski in early 2002. And I brought my then watch with me um, which I had to hide somewhere uh, because there were no locks in the uh, in the doors. And then when we uh, went into the helicopter, I had to use my Suunto to count feet and to count temperatures and so forth. And uh, that led to the kind of common experience that we you know we would like to have a watch where you could attach functionality and detach it as was needed. And uh, we saw various solutions where you had like digital uh, combined with analog and didn't really, you know, care much for that. So we, we came up with this uh, quite different idea, especially at the time, possibly also now, that you would have a mechanic timepiece with attachable 
digital instruments, one for skiing and one for diving. It's a very sensible solution. Yes, in some sense it is, because you have the extreme functionality uh, and, and only when you need it. Um, and we uh, we spent about four to five years developing it. And uh, as you said, we launched approximately the same time as a, uh, I, I think you would call it block to read then. It was. Wasn't it? it started as a block to read, then became yeah. a block to watch. Um, <laughs> now, so. talking about Linda Verlin today is, I think it's difficult to understand context because like a brand like what you have could come out today feasibly, but you didn't. You came out a lot longer ago than most of the other ones did. And there's a lot of things you did first or very, very early on, um, whether it's selling watches online, uh, the sort of particular approach to limited editions that you did, uh, the way that you would market and things like that. There was many things that you sort of did first. Even some of the designs that are now quite trendy um, started back then. And I I really want to hear a little bit about what was going on in your mind. I, I I know that you don't have a watch product background, and you know Morton was the, the the you know the industrial designer and things like that. But what was it like trying to break into the watch industry, you know, then in the early two thousands versus now, where it seems like is a little bit more of a straightforward path if you want to have quote unquote a startup brand. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I wouldn't like to be a startup watch uh, today. I think at that time uh, there was kind of a resurgence of of interest in in watches, and I remember back in uh, in the late nineties, um, I went to look at the you know the new Panerai, and uh, you know it was ninety seven, ninety eight, or something, right when it came out, and it was one of the first independent brands, and then in Around when we started looking at it, 2002, 2003, there was this sort of mushrooming of new brands coming out. And it was a very, very interesting sector. Uh, I, I would say between that period and up until 2015, when something you know changed. And I think what we are seeing now in terms of the independent brands is that there's a, a much larger concentration around uh, independent brands that have been around for, for quite a while. And I mean, I may be wrong, but I don't know many new independent brands coming around. And I wonder if it's more difficult today than it was 20 years ago. It is. It is more difficult. And it became easier and then it got more difficult. And it became more difficult because manufacturing capacity changed, right? When you were doing it, there was manufacturing capacity because no one was doing it. It was kind of weird and you could sort of fly under the radar. Then everybody started doing little independent watch brands because there was manufacturing capacity for it. Then a lot of those manufacturers, and that's a whole different you know conversation, started to say, well, we'll keep some of the old relationships we have, or maybe we'll drop those as well. But new people, you're not going to come in for the same amount of money or we're just not going to help you at all. And so the oversaturation combined with the lowered amount of manufacturing capacity has made it much more challenging today. Do you think that you were sort of fortunate time-wise? Like you, you discovered a trend when it was in a very nascent period. You, 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 know, you grew at a time when you could. There was opening in the market. And then you sort of gained, I guess you could say, a level of momentum and maybe legitimacy because of the time you've done it. You know, uh, Similar to blog to watch I don't know that given the internet environment today, I could replicate 
what I did in 2007. And you know, anyone who's an entrepreneur knows that, you know, sometimes they say strike while the iron's hot. There are particular times in the market mm. where you can do things that that moment is fleeting. And if you're in, you're great. You're great. But if not, you can't replicate that when the market has changed, you know, years later. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I would agree. And I think we were fortunate enough, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little bit, you know, also to, you know, kind of growing up, you, you know, alongside you. There was a period where suddenly there were new communication forms, the internet, and, you know, we could suddenly, uh, you know, com communicate to a lot more people uh, a lot less expensively. And traditionally, you had to go, through only magazines and, and very, very forms, uh, expensive forms of communication. And you wouldn't reach a lot of people. And, and, and people generally have inertia, right? I mean, when we think about the, uh, the sort of total population who, who, who buys a watch, how many in reality are interested, uh, in, uh, you know, by the top five brands? I mean, very, very few people. And if it's expensive to come through to them, then it's almost impossible. Um, and, and, and to grow to a certain size where it makes, uh, you know, it makes it relevant for, uh, for, like you say, production capacity in Switzerland. Uh, and, 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 yeah, I'm simply to, to sell enough watches to, to, to make a, a, a company, you know, viable. So I think, you know, just to sort of answer that uh, at length, right, it, it, we, we were fortunate that we were around in a period where a lot of things were changing. And when things changed, I would say somewhat for the worse or more challenging since 2015, we had already come so far and had so much experience that we were able to deal with, you know, sometimes some, you know, quite tough environments. Um, and, uh, and, and for sure, there's a huge difference between being, you know, a Rolex or a Lind Berlin in, in terms of how you deal with markets. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's so important to keep telling people the story that when you're a new brand and you come out, you need a combination of things, luck, product, vision, persistence, um, a marketing plan or strategy, whatever you want to call it. And these, these things all have to work in tandem because if you have just one of them, what ends up happening is you either have no success because you're missing too much of the picture or you have mm -hmm. like a very temporary limited success. And we've seen these brands or concepts in our watch space, you know, bubbles, if you will, or trends shoot up to popularity very fast and then drop and disappear. And I think yeah. that consumers reward those that have the consistency. And maybe that's why a lot of consumers wait for a brand to be around for a while, which again, you, you now have been, um, because they're worried that you might just be a fad, right? Because what happens if it three years goes by and now everyone's doing it? You know, I think Sapphire Crystal Cases is yeah. kind of an interesting example. When they first came out, when Richard Mille first came out with the Sapphire Crystal Case, over a million dollars, big wow factor. And if you bought it, you're like, you think you're cool. Two years later, you could get Sapphire Crystal Cases for under 100,000, under, you know, I think Hublot came out with their, mm. uh, it was about 60,000 bucks, their, their Big Bang um, with the Sapphire Case. And how do you feel as that as that consumer who spent all that money? Maybe you feel cool because you got in on early, 
Or maybe you're like, you know what? I really wished that I would have stuck around to see where the Sapphire thing was going. I would have jumped on it, but maybe it's too early. And I think there's a lot of that in the watch consumer space. My question is, when you went into the watch industry, were you aware of any of this? Or were you like me, sort of maybe a little bit naive, thinking that, oh, consumers love new things? <laughs> well, we were definitely naive right? and, 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 and passionate about it. And, and and that's also so I, I think you know I completely agree with what you're saying about the things that are needed and it's definitely perseverance, but it's also passion, right? And you've got to be around for a long time. And it absolutely gets the consumer or, or, or our client base uh, who I mean because most of our watches range between uh you know sort of low ten thousand pounds to twenty five thousand pounds. And I think uh, for one that however much money you have or make that is a lot of money, and we need to give the customer something for it, right? Because you, you, I, I would be very embarrassed if uh, if someone sits with one of our pieces, right, and they, and someone across the table say, "Oh, I just saw that watch for sale at you know one quarter of the price that you bought it for," or indeed that you know the brand doesn't exist anymore. So I, I get that inertia. Even if, if, if people are interested in new things, I think there's a, there's a big, big difference in being interested in it and then actually going to say, I, I trust these people and I'm willing to commit a, you know, a certain amount of, you know, pride also because let's not forget why people buy watches. It, it's, it's, you know, well, it, it for, uh, you know, multitude of reasons, right? But, but one thing is also taking a certain, uh, satisfaction or delight in, in what you have and, and for other people to, you know, quote unquote, admire what you're wearing. And, and if we can't deliver that, then, you know, we, we are missing the point. And, and, uh, and, and I think that is where consistency come in. And we sometimes, uh, which I disagree with, you know, people say, Oh, but you're, you need to come up with something new, come up with a new shape, come up with new this, come up with new that. And, and yes, that is true for some brands. They, they live on that sort of, you know, the newness. Um, but when I look around to the most successful brands, what I see is a sort of an innate, um, uh, almost repetition or improvements and, and, and a certain amount of, uh, well, pride is not the right word, but, but satisfaction in what you have done. And, and, and that is where we operate, right? I, you know, personally, I, obviously, I, I really love, uh, you know, our spider light, our octopus. And even 10, 15 years after we have uh, invented them, you know, I, I look at them and I feel that is a very, very good watch. And obviously, sometimes you need to make small changes and you need to uh, make upgrades in the movement and change the dial and, and maybe, you know, little bit with the shape of the case, but I, I do not see the need of going, you know, a little bit to the right and then a little bit to the left and then forward and then backwards. Well, that's an interesting point to make. And I think that it's worth a little bit of response for me because I, I want to support what you're saying, but I think there's sort of two sides to it. Sure. On the one hand, the media side, I guess you could say is you're a brand that wants people to talk about you, your brand that has things going on. And media tends to you know, or the enthusiast media at least, tends to understand the brand very quickly. So for myself, I'm able to understand what you're doing with the product very quickly. And because of that, I want to know what's next. I'm like, keep making it better. Keep making more. Because I'm able to, as an expert, absorb what you're doing very quickly. 
And so from the media perspective, yes, there's always this demand, more, new, keep evolving, keep changing, keep me interested, and, and all that, which I think makes sense and has a lot of good explanations for it. But, and this is, I think, the really important part of it, the media tends to not represent the biggest group of buyers. Mm-hmm. Buyers are not as sophisticated as media. They're not as tied in. They simply need a lot more time to either learn about the product initially or to get to know it and sort of mentally place it within the context of other watches and other purchase options. This is a long period of time. And I've spoken to many, many designers, not just in the watch space, but others. And all everyone seems to agree that when you come out with something novel, even if it ends up being great, even if it ends up being something which changes the world, it's not immediately successful. Um, there's no specific formula how long it takes, but you know, oftentimes at least a decade. Yeah. Um, you look at some of these iconic watches that hit these, you know, these anniversaries, and you look at the popularity of the Royal Oak, the Nautilus, the Rolex Submariner, and what people seem to not talk about very often is how many years it took. <laughs> for these products to become the icons that they are. You know, uh, all of these watches recently celebrated anniversaries. I guess they always do. Um, 50th anniversary of the Royal Oak. And I remember, you know, and this is this is an institution, this design. But yeah. it took the first 25, 30 years. I wouldn't say it was a dud, but Audemars Piguet just kept pumping money into it when it really wasn't a market leader. They kept trying again and again and again and again. And no one after just a few years of the Royal Oak would have been like, ah, oh, masterpiece. They, nope, nobody yeah. would have said that. Yeah. The, the, the Submariner did not become a, a collectible luxury object until the 1990s, 40 years after it was released in 1953. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Similar story with the Nautilus. It was not until recently that it sort of gained its super popularity. Again, came out in the 1970s. It was a dud for most of that time. Don't forget the reversal, right? It was celebrated uh, yeah. uh, 90 years last year. And for most people, that's still an underrated. Uh, it, and, you know, uh, Correct. I, I, I think it's one of the iconic is possibly the first uh, sort of real sports watch. And, and, and 90 years later, it, it's still an iconic watch. Yeah. And for most of its lifespan, it wasn't even made. No. Or no one really cared about it. Well, and so for Linda Verdelin or anyone for that matter today, um, feeling like they need to have a new icon, you know, three or four years after the launch of their model or their brand would be attempting to do something which is not within sort of the historical trends. What does become popular quick are trendy things which are me too objects. Like I can also make one. It's my version of it, you know, derivative stuff. Mm. But that type of stuff fades in popularity very quickly. And I want to have another example. Let's let's look at Ice Watch. You remember Ice Watch? Ice Watch <laughs> is a company, they might still exist, I think they do, where they made plastic copies of Rolexes. The Daytona was the most popular one, and they had a plastic Daytona that sold like crazy. And it sold like crazy because it was a, you know, it was a plastic, inexpensive, fun-looking version of 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 a, of a popular look. That everybody wanted, and it was only it was only as popular as the Daytona and Rolex was, and it totally rode on that. And it was a trendy way of enjoying that look for a while until other better ways of getting the Rolex look came about. Ice Watch, yep. with yep. all of its power, 
was entirely susceptible of someone coming in and having a better emulation uh, in low cost form of Rolex. It's all yeah. it took. That you know, there's no there's no protection there. But when you when you have your own design, like you have done, and you you nurture it for a period of time, at some point, people look at it and be like, oh wow, there's this whole body of work here, and 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 there's all this originality, and there's all this persistence, and you're sort of rewarded. When did you first feel rewarded for sticking it through with the, um, I don't even know what the name of the shape is, but you know, the, the Linda Verlin case shape. Well, you know, it was that we, we had a, uh, you know, between nine and 15, we had a, you know, a very good ride and we actually became probably, you know, what you are referring to, you know, almost too hot. And, and, uh, and then in 15, we felt very exposed for various reasons, uh, you know, uh, Crimea, Z in, uh, in China, commodity price. And we completely changed our model around from being uh, wholesale and going to Basel and to, to, uh, to go to being a direct business and being much more customer centric. And I, I think that also goes back to your previous. Uh, question is that you know when you sat at Basel every year, people say, "What's new? What's new? What's new?" And 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 you had this every year. We needed to deliver something. It should be movement. It should be case material. It should be this and that. Once we withdrew from Basel and say, you know, we we we're not going to be part of this anymore. We're not going to be part of this wholesale uh, and and this sort of you know annual circus. I realized also from speaking to our customers that they were not particularly interested in us coming up with a new thing and a new thing. They much rather, you know, they would come to us like three, four, five years after say, that what you did at that time, do you have anything a little bit like it? Because I've been looking at Little Berlin now for three years, for five years, for 10 years. And now I'm, you know, I'm interested in buying, right? I didn't know whether you would be around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that really sort of confirmed to me that once we started listening to ourselves, that was the right route for us to take. And I'm not saying that that's the right route for anyone else in particular to take, but that suited us very well. So the other question about when, when the case, and I think, I think we are still in the, uh, in the discovery phase. I mean, you have to think, you know, we at that time when we had global wholesale, we sold about 600, 600, 700 watches in the last two or three years of that. Now we sell probably about 150 watches, right? But obviously every single watch goes on to the rest of a customer, right? And generally, I would say, you know, people ask me, so yeah, what do you do for marketing? Well, I'm not really sure we do marketing. I think we do, you know, communication and a lot of what we do it's really sort of, it's uh, what is called mouth to mouth. Right? It's one client telling another one. It's a client seeing our watches, you know, again and again, and then, uh, you know, starting to desire it. Yeah, let me explain a little bit of the context there. You know, and again, thank you for sharing that. And again, it makes a lot of business sense going sort of to the Basel worlds and the, and the media and the expectations Many people listening to the show know is because it's part of their business, but releasing new watches is a way of getting attention, right? Like, yeah. as you said, there needs to be marketing. There needs to be 
an ability for people to talk about you. And one avenue is to purchase advertising, which is, you know, predictable but expensive and typically the type of thing that small companies can't, you know, always maintain if they have thin profit margins or just have a lot of expenses. And so what a lot of brands have figured out is they can get a lot of attention through constantly releasing new products. And so what you may think about when you see all this is, oh, people keep releasing all these watches because people want all these watches. In reality, no, that's not true. It's not like this is you know responding to market demand. It's just that this company needs people to talk about them. And the only thing they know how to do is come up with a new product. And in some instances, it actually makes the situation worse. Because if there's too many watches out there and the market is saturated, it further decreases incentive to buy a watch because there's so many out there, meaning that the price is not that high and because it's you know, you know, supply and demand. And by releasing more, you further saturate a, a market that isn't buying the ones that exist. So in the attempt to sell watches, you actually <laughs> make it more difficult for yourself to do so by virtue of the strategy that you use to communicate. Yep. And so I think that it's it's an interesting thing. But so you have to find this happy medium between how many products do you release and what strategies you have to communicate. Ideally, you'd have a marketing budget and you could just, you know, spend on on marketing and, and continue to do branding. I mean, wouldn't that be the ideal world? Oh, I mean that that's a you know, it's a it's a discussion that I had with someone about some something else the other day, right? That this uh, I guess well, I mean, with big tech, you know, doing what it's doing for the moment, right? There's, I guess there's one model where you sort of think, well, what we'll do now is we will just invest and invest or spend, spend, spend. And then we think that in 10, 15, 20 years time, we will have grown by so and so much. And then we'll be a huge, very profitable company. What I thought, because that was, I wouldn't say that that was what we were testing out, but we went, we, we grew by about 40% from 2009 to 2015 year on year. And that almost pulled us apart, right? Because you, with wholesale, you, you need to up your production by 40% a year. That's quite tough. Um, and what we do now is we probably grow about 20%, which is much more manageable. And, and also, we don't have that exposure to, you know, watches sitting outside at, at retailers. Uh, so what I was uh, kind of going for is to say, well, I would much rather build a smaller, functional company. You may not be profitable uh, every year, but at least it's a, uh, it's, it's a model that, that works, whether you are small or you're big. And when you are not, uh, you know, fed up with or, you know, have uh, private equity investors or other types of investors and you actually have to, you know, make a living out of it, then you become a lot more risk averse, right? Because it's not a, it's not a lottery ticket, right? It's, it's actually something that, that needs to work in the mid to long term. Um, and that was what what kind of changed our uh, the way that we conducted business back in between fifteen and seventeen. It, it took us you know a few years to kind of model it back to something you know that we liked. Right? So it, two, right. two different business models, and and for some you know it works great, right? Because they they will have some you know investors that think it's great and it's fun, we love it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Just you know you know go on with it, right? But it's not always that that ends up uh, ends up well. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. Again, um, talking about the entrepreneurial mission, when you are starting a brand or that's that's having some success, the tendency is to be like, yeah, let's grow. Let's hire people um, and let's grow because I'm doing a lot of work and it'd be, it'd be great to do that. But once you start hiring people and growing, you recognize, as you said, you need more money. So how do you do that? Well, one is you can start to sell a bunch more watches or make them more expensive. And both of those things can have major issues, such as oversaturating the market or basically pricing your watches out of the current consumer base and having to find another one. And we know plenty of brands that have fallen to both of those traps. Or as you said, you go down the investor route and you said, hey, uh, we're not generating this much money right now, but we think that we could generate more if only we had this help. And it could take us a number of years. But then you have to, like you said, you have to actually perform at some point. There's pressure and you have to do a lot of things that may not be comfortable. Another thing is to just sort of, and this is the hardest thing, which you've done, is to say, you know what, we're going to like actually scale it back. We're going to have to scale down to as, as small as we need to be to just make a certain number of units to be able to come out with, you know, a, a little bit of novelty, communicate as much as we need to the people at a stable amount that we feel that we can we can sell to an existing base. We have a couple of partners. It's not going to grow. It's going to be, well, it may grow, but it's not going to go crazy. It's just going to be a more quiet type of business. And we do see in various ways a lot of watchmakers that have done this. I think Orwork is maybe a very popular example mm. um, around, you know, a little bit older than you guys, not not by that many years, <laughs> higher about, price point. About five. No, but I... I yeah. have a lot of I have a lot of time for you know for Felix's words uh, you know that uh, well it has inspired me sometimes you know ever since you know at the beginning. Right? But again, small production, and they've just said we we don't want to necessarily grow. Like we are happy at this at at this level. We know that we're not going to attract any like big corporate you know parents or anything like that, and they're okay with you know good but you know steady modest salaries and a relatively small team and they've just made the decision and i know that max booster at mbnf has struggled with this for many years he was on the let's let's stay a certain size we're not going to do like particularly big you know productions he seemed to shift gears a little bit over the last few years and increase <laughs> the number of accessories and things they made but he he definitely shifted gears there to wanting to, to have a little bit of a larger size. And so you see this inter in, in, interesting struggle. There's no one way of doing it, but I think that everybody agrees if you grow too big too fast, it can very, very quickly become a death sentence. Yeah, no, it, it does because, you know, uh, we'll just eat production. The time that it takes to come up with an idea for a watch and, and, and to you know, to, to, to make it. And just today, I, you know, speaking to, uh, you know, one of the factories that makes our cases, right. And, you know, the, the, the cases that we're discussing now, we won't see for another, you know, six months. And that's just the case. That's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, and I've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years. eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces. A luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. 
What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. What do you do in all the downtime? I think that's a, that's something I've never asked a lot of the people in your position, <laughs> but this is important. As you just said, you gave a great example. We ordered some cases. We won't see it for six months. It's that way with a lot of things. And what that means is that if you're in the watch business, especially with a smaller brand, so much of your time is just waiting for something to materialize in production. So the question is, what do you do with the downtime? And also, how do you mentally prepare for those long periods of you know, I mean, I have to do something, but it isn't it isn't design or sell watches because I can't do that right now. <laughs> Are you asking me personally? Or, yeah, or, I mean, or theoretically, it, it, maybe both, maybe well, both. But yeah. it, it's a real yeah, yeah. it's a real thing. This sort of like built in level of yeah, high yeah, patience no, 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 no. is a reality. Yeah. No, 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 for, for sure. I mean, you know, it's not that the only thing I do is is production. Right? There's a there's a hell of a lot of different things, and it, and it's quite a complicated. You know, thing to the, you know the whole production uh, is possibly the most complicated thing to to make work, right? And uh, you know, for for a, a number of reasons, everything has to fit just perfectly. And you know, if one screw is missing, the watch is not finished. And you know, you you you've got the movements, you've got the dials, you've got the hands, you've got the cases, the straps, the this, the that, the other, right? Everything has to uh, you, you know, sort of you know, work together in, in, in harmony just to make, uh, you know, one new series of watches. So, I mean, obviously, well, we are producing all the time, but then you also have to say, you know, we're working on a new watch box for the moment, right? We just received the prototype the last week. We are discussing the, the final elements of that, so, you know, some first. And then, obviously, you know, the, on Wednesday, I go up to Denmark. We have an event up there. You know, a couple of days goes with that. Uh, so, uh, but you know what, I, I've also worked in this business for 20 years and, you know, most Fridays, I don't really care much to work. I've got, uh, you know, two small children, uh, you know, I like to spend time with, uh, you know, like to heat my weekends a little bit longer. Right. And you know, earlier today I was down South because we, uh, we were done. We have a piece of land down there that I was looking at. So, you know, it, it's not that I necessarily put in five days a week, every week. Um, so, so I guess with my downtime, I do a lot of other things, but you no, know, it's, it's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. And, and, uh, um, and, and, and I think, you know, the first couple of years, obviously you put in a lot of work on you. I remember between say 11 and, and 15 when we did wholesale, I, I, was in a suitcase, you know, plus 180 nights per year, and and um, you know, I was uh, I was talking to uh, Miguel, whom you also know, Miguel Sabra, uh, the other day, and he just came home from Geneva, from Paris, uh, and and I said to him, you know, I I really I do not envy him that right. I remember those years, and that is extremely tiring. So you know, there's there's also sometimes where you just have to put in a lot of work and. You know, and, and that can that can be through years, right? And then other years you have, you know, you 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 worry because things are maybe you know sometimes it, you know it's great, right? And you know you you you're having a very nice business, and other times 
Not so much, right? But then when you have it, you know, just enjoy it, right? <laughs> because you never know what tomorrow brings. Yeah, and that's, you know, an interesting thing to talk about is the hustle. And we've we've been over that in this show with many different guests about how unluxurious the luxury industry can be at times, which again is made more difficult by the fact that to the people buying watches, it's the leisure and celebration industry. It's all about rewarding yourself mm. and having a good time and relaxing and, you know, just, just celebrating life in general, which is really hard to do when you have day to, you know, day to night appointments and you're traveling all the time, living out of suitcases. And, you know, you and I have both been in beautiful parts of the world that people go to for pleasure and we're there to work and to work hard. And we've <laughs> left not doing those things that everyone that goes there for pleasure, you know, fantasizes about, you know, it's like Switzerland. Yeah. Lovely place to visit as a tourist, but to like do business and work in Switzerland, like a totally different story. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. When a coffee costs uh, eight Swiss or even more and hotels, uh, you know, a yeah. lot more than that. No, absolutely. absolutely. It, it, and it's it's this idea of making the Swiss made watch. You know, they don't make it easy to make a Swiss made watch. Like I'm not saying it's the hardest thing in the world. It doesn't all have to be made in Switzerland as we know, but you know, being able to have a successful luxury watch that is part of the established, you know, cadre of brands requires a mm. lot of hazing. It requires a lot of diligence. You know, they wait. Like, does this person have it? I mean, I, you know, both of us probably had the moment where we felt that the establishment was accepting us. I'm like, oh, okay, Linda Verdlin, you're you're here to stay now. You know, okay, Ariel Adams. You keep showing up for these events. I guess you're going to keep coming back. You know, we'll we'll, tr we'll treat you like one of us now. And it it, you know, it you and I are, are accustomed to some other businesses that that operate faster. The the speed at which or the lack of speed at which you know the watch industry happens continues to humble great business yeah. people around the world, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. But as, but it's also you know it's it it is a privilege. It is also a privilege to be able to do it, and to and I think also to be in an industry as ours, which is uh, you know so full of uh, you know fun and interesting stuff, passionate people, strange people, uh, you know funny stories, right? You know that I you know come across all the time, right? From speaking to people, from visiting factories, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, you know, if if you sort of think, you know, is it is it the you know, would I give that advice to a young man in his early 30s to start a watch company? No, not necessarily, right? But when I think back on those 20 years, I mean, it's been hugely rewarding, uh, you know, at, at least mentally, right? Because it is, it is also a very challenging thing to do. So you're certainly not bored, right? And, and I, I think the intellectual, you know, both from a product point of view, but understanding the customer and getting to grips with everything else and always trying to be a little bit on on kind of the forefront of what things, uh, what, what's happening, because obviously as an industry, we, we are certainly not isolated. Uh, so, you know, you, you also need to understand what, what's, what's happening in the wider world, right? And what's happening with younger people, what's happening in the economy. Is, is that important or is it not important, right? Um, yeah. and, 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 and for that, I just find it, you know, I, I look back on those 20 years and say, wow, okay. I, 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 I can't say that I was bored a lot of, uh, well, any of the time, really. Let's talk a that's little, great. 
Yeah, and that's good. I I agree. This is not a boring industry, even though there's a lot of waiting around. It's not a boring <laughs> industry. Let's go back a number of years. Um, you know, when I first got to know the brand, you had this. You know, the biformeter, which was the the land instrument that attached onto the watch, and and I you know we briefly touched on this, but I just want to explain the idea. And when again, when I my first got to know the watch. Here's a mechanical timepiece that's sporty and durable, but high design. So it was for the type of person that, you know, likes some adventure, sees themselves as an active individual, but very much wants to look cool, which again is important. You know, you don't want the boring equipment. But then on top of the mechanical watch experience, which is <clears throat> what the enthusiast wanted, you had gone the extra route of building this cool-looking electronic module that you you updated a couple of times. And for me, it was that, you know, that that Casio, you know, ProTrek experience where you had this multi-sensor watch on, you know, that, that was for hiking and outdoor stuff. But again, in this sort of like fancy materials and metal, again, high design, expensive, it fit into this sort of fantasy of, Again, some might call it sort of like a James Bond lifestyle, but the idea is that you're you're doing these active adventures, adventurous things. You're living a little bit dangerously. You need these tools, but it's also you know important to you to surround yourself with cool stuff. And I think for a lot of guys in the early 2000s, and probably just as much, if not more so today, that is the aspirational existence, right? It's having fun and looking cool in the process. Does yep. that kind of define what you guys were thinking, or am I just going a completely different direction? No, I think I think that's probably pretty accurate. I think we we were trying to model it on on how we saw ourselves, uh, maybe maybe correctly or incorrectly, but very much a sort of an aspirational sporty lifestyle, something centered around you know. Uh, with holidays or adventure in the mountains or and, and holidays or adventure you know in the sea going diving going skiing going trekking climbing uh, uh you know off pisting uh you know etc so all what i think is exciting about the mountains and, and likewise about the seas right and i i think later on now when i when i look at those two universes i see a lot more uh, it, than just activity in those two universes right i i you know, there's some sort of, uh, you know, mental health thing about it, right? It, and and uh, it's the aesthetics, but it's certainly also kind of the, you know, the beauty of nature, right? And, uh, you know, it, it it also brought us into sustainability. So I think those two universes for, for us have really sort of, they have grown. Um, and and I think in my, in my childhood, in my young days, skiing was just about, you know, almost how fast can I go down the hill? Right. And, and as I get older, it's, it, it has changed into for, you know, 20, 30 years now. It's been more about, you know, uh, going what I guess in the US is called backcountry, but off piece skiing, uh, you know, into where nobody else goes, you know, the quietness, the, the, the beauty, the, the, the difficult, you know, climb up the, the, you know, the few turns you can take in, in virgin powder. You know, et cetera, et cetera. But also, you know, combined with coming back and having, you know, a fantastic lunch or, you know, great dinner with a beautiful glass of wine. Um, and, and, you know, like, like you say, it's, a, it's an aspirational lifestyle in, in many shapes and forms. And that's really, yes, that is what 
we originally thought it should be, and I guess still is. Maybe just matured a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a wonderful sort of you know explanation. And I want to say that, again, in the watch space, there's very different ways of approaching doing business. What you're describing and what I like, Jorn, is this sort of difference of the traditional thing is I wanted to make the best watch for watch lovers. What you were doing is you were sort of tying into a hobby. We know that there's a lot of wonderful ways of making money by tying into the spending people do around their hobby. Uh, skiing is a hobby. It's a sport, but it's a hobby. And I remember reading about when skiing really entered the United States. I think it was in the, I don't know, 60s or something like that. Um, as, as sort of this sport, it was really about where are people going to go and spend money on this new hobby? That's what everyone was excited about. And everything from where they were traveling to, to the gear, to the skis, to the vehicles, to, it's, it all became related to spending money on a hobby, driving, diving. These are all hobbies. And the watch industry has successfully been a corollary to people spending on their hobbies for generations and yeah. generations. And you were just directly trying to tie in that and say, hey, if you share our hobbies, this is a cool accessory to go with it. Now, other watch brands have, of course, gone that route, but oftentimes in an indirect way, they've had to say, oh, our product, you know, that could work in your hobby. But you said, no, let's make a watch specifically for the hobby. And I think a lot of brands yeah. follow that direction, even if they haven't described it in that succinct way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an easier way also to explain, you know, what you're doing. And, and, and you, you mentioned it yourself, you know, I want to make the best watch. And, and I think we very often hear that, right, in, 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 you know, in, in, in stories and in interviews and et cetera, et cetera, you know, even at the recent, you know, Grand Prix, right? How do you determine, you know, what is the best watch? There is no best watch. And it becomes a very... Uh, you know, kind of monochrome discussion into the the center of the watch, right? And and all I can say is that there are you know many different beautiful versions of or interpretation of watches, right? But kind of that competition about our watch is better than the other watch. That's really you know, I mean, I would say almost a silly discussion to have. Now, in terms of the design, you know, I want to hear a little bit about the ways that people tried to get you to change it, but you sort of stuck with this core, you know, look. And and I think one of the things that allowed you to stay with the same design for a long time was the fact that the case literally had these, you know, notches on the side where these instruments could clip into it. So there was a very functional purpose for the watches you wanted mm. them to fit. But at a certain point, you sort of stopped making the instruments. And I think it's safe to say it just, it was no longer able to be competitive, right? Like you wanted to have a great experience at, at a good, you know, a nice high price point, but with electronics and expectations moving as fast as possible, I, I'm just guessing it just, it just, you had to make the decision yeah. at some point. Like we just, we can no longer compete in this market. Well, on that, I just brought an anecdote. We, so this year, because of our 20th anniversary, we, uh, we published 20 anecdotes uh, some of them about, you know, the history of some of the things we have done. And uh, this weekend we wrote, I wrote one on, on the instruments. And like you say, we stopped doing them in 2012. And that was simply, uh, I, I, it's kind of the, 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 uh, the pivoting point, I think, was when I was up in the mountains and I downloaded an app and it cost me one pound fifty. And it had 
every possible information that you can imagine. And you have a screen, right? You know, the size of an iPad, right? And I realized there's no way that we can even come close to doing something which is uh, which is as, as dynamic as easy. And you always carry your phone, right? So, so, and I think that was the, the point where we decided: isn't people? They understand our story. They understand the idea. We are not going to keep on doing instruments when only a small proportion, I think about 10 to 15% of people then bought our instrument. So, you know, 85 to 90% anyways didn't buy the instrument. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and then we, then we started. Obviously, there are still people who say, oh, you know, I think you should really make another instrument. But I find it very hard to, uh, you know, to imagine that we that we will go that route again. I, I think it's it, 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 it's our raison d'être, it's our uh, history, and as I wrote in this anecdote, also, it has kind of forever, uh, you know, determined the the shape of our cases and 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 the construction of it. You know, the screws are you know coming also from screws that we use in the instruments. Uh, you know, the the the, the shape with the. Uh, uh, you know, if the case, you know, it's because you needed to attach an instrument and the, the indentations on at three o'clock and, and at nine o'clock is because that's where the fasting mechanisms were for the instrument. So, so there's so many elements of the instrument still in the watch that, that, you know, as I said, whenever you wear an inverted watch, you are in some way still wearing the instrument. Now, you can disagree with me, but I had this crazy idea about how to bring the concept back. You want to hear it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's basically the opposite of what you did. What you did before is you had a traditional watch underneath and you put the smart watch, we'll call it that, on top of it. Why don't you do the other way around? For those times where you don't want your Apple Watch to look like an Apple Watch, stick on the Linda Verdelin attachable mechanical watch on top of it. You can still get your heart rate and activity tracking and all that, but you get to look at something else for a little while. Is that crazy? So you put it on top of no, it's not. No, it's not. So you put it on top of your of uh, your your Apple Watch. Yeah, I mean, again, it just flips the concepts <laughs> upside down. The idea was that the, the smartwatch yeah, yeah. thing is what you want once in a while. Now, because of activity tracking, you get to do all that. But rather than project, a, hey, I'm wearing you know the activity tracker or Apple Watch, it's you know the the sexier message. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, you could you could do that, but yeah, I guess you could also we could also do a case. Where you could put the uh, the Apple Watch inside, sure, you know, take it concept. into an LW case. Same yeah, concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've wanted to see more of that. I mean, there's this whole universe of like <laughs> aftermarket strap makers, but you know, yeah. And there's these companies that make like you know, I, they're like rugged cases for Apple Watch. They they change the look and feel of it, and I'm just waiting for somebody to be like, just make a super crazy one that's over engineered and amazing. It has a design element to it. Like, it's sort of weird it hasn't happened yet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, 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 we have had the idea, uh, you know, sort of, you know, talking about it, whether it would be, you know, make make a case, you know, let up your case rather than I was. But, uh, but I, you know, we didn't follow up on it. So uh, There's still time. <laughs> there's still an opportunity. There's still time. Yep, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Well, I'll, you know, I'll have another think about it. So let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing in terms of design stuff and materials and things like that. You know, you have a particular price point, not the most expensive, by no means the cheapest. And 
I guess what I want to hear about is what do the consumers that you have expected that at that level, what does it take to continue to keep them interested? Is it exploring new materials? Is it movements? You know, and, and again, this ties in a little bit. I'd like you to talk about how, mm. as a company, you actually decided to, and I think you may have been the first to sort of handle pre-owned by yourself. What you would do is you would take back yeah. watches and you would, um, you know, basically resell them after you service them as sort of a certified pre-owned. You sort of, you, you, you did that. I guess the question is, mm-hmm. in a few broad strokes, what do consumers expect um, from the company right now, especially given the, the, the price points that you sort of settled at? Yeah. So one of the things that we are, or things that we are working on now, which is uh, you know not sort of you know coming out tomorrow, uh, but we we are actually working on uh, on, on movements. Um, and also we are working on, uh, you know, on case materials. We are also, and that's, we probably have, you know, before this podcast comes out, uh, is we will cease to reduce the, uh, we, we will do one last launch of the, uh, of the three timer. And, and one of the reasons is I want to, uh, go to that we only have lightweight materials. Excluding obviously, you know, some gold watches. Um, but, but I, I really want to focus on the titanium, on the, uh, the 3DTP carbon, on the ALW, on other materials that we, uh, that we are looking into and, and kind of because it's, it's always been, well, I mean, since 2008, 2009 has been, you know, the, the idea to do a lightweight watch. And uh, on that note, yesterday I was watching a film that Liu Holding has made, uh, which is called House of the Gods, of his climb to uh, Mount Roraima in, uh, in Guyana, where we sponsored some of that expedition. And one of the reasons that he wears a little Berlin is because it's it's very, very light, right? It weighs uh, 62 grams. And, and and that is what's required when you... Uh, Go go up the mountains, whether you climb or you ski. So so we we are focusing on materials and also uh, you know looking into the movement. And I think that is what people expect us to do uh, when when you at our price point to deliver something which is uh, which is unique both in terms of design um, and, and 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 the quality and the and the uniqueness and three uh, D speak carbon and ALW are two unique materials that nobody else has. Now that's very interesting that it's really gone back to performance because for a long time people were like ah oh, people don't need the watch doesn't need to be comfortable just make it cool and ostentatious and then it actually quickly turned into yeah it's an expensive product but it actually needs to be very practical. And there needs to be a story around, you know, why it's a good watch. And actually, it has to be a good watch. And then, you know, we went from, you know, like weighing a watch in our hand, being like, oh, that's heavy, that's good, to really wanting things to be lightweight. It's been sort of an interesting turnaround. It, do you believe that that is still the direction that the, the luxury watch industry for the next several years is going to be an experimentation in materials? Because I don't see horology advancing and, and design, you know, I guess changes here or there, but... Do you agree that this is going to be like a materials and finishing battle? No, I don't think. I think most people probably prefer more traditional materials, right? Okay. I, mean, I, I think what we see for, for you know, kind of, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned the Nautilus, the, the, you know, the Royal Oak and et cetera, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of them are, you know, steel uh, or, you know, 
white gold. I mean, they, they're quite rarely in, in other materials, right? I think there was one watch that I saw the other day, which was made in uh, in tantalum, right? And even when did we last see a watch in tantalum? I know we looked at it some years back. A very very difficult material to work with, right? Um, and and the lightweight materials, you know, some of them, right? Then I mean, it, it 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 is that sort of borderline when. Is it really progress, or is is it just you know, <laughs> you know plastic in another world? Do, do, do you understand what I mean? It is it, you know, and it it, sure. it, it it can be it, you know it 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 can be a difficult balance, right? Because it needs to have integrity. Also, it can't just be an experiment into something which is uh, which is really not a very good material. And and and, and I think that there aren't that many good watch materials which doesn't have a certain metal component in it. Uh, I mean, the the ALW that we use is, I mean, it's great because it's so light and has, I think, has a very sort of beautiful milky color. One of the problems is that it's so hard that it can become brittle, right? So that we, 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 we have to make sure what we use it for and the thickness of it, and in particular, you know, with the spider-like case, which actually goes for everything, including the 3DTP carbon. When we developed that, we, we really had to think about, you know, the, you know, the, uh, how the material responds also to the inner case, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to make sure that, that, uh, that is, uh, that is strong enough. You, you, you can't have a watch that breaks, right? You, or fall apart or, or like the early carbon models back in the day, right? Where they frayed. Right, and and you you always have that problem when you experiment with, experiment with a new material, because even if a watch is small, you know it it is also, you know there, there's there's potentially a lot of wear on it, right? Yeah, and especially if it's sports watch, and that that's one reason that in the beginning we 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 did DLC on our watches, and uh, and, and and some of them that were used to heavily for sport they came back. And, and the DLC had obviously been rubbed off, yeah. and I, I, oh, we did, we didn't like that, right? I mean, just like, okay, if we were making a watch here, and and it comes back, uh, uh, you know, three, four, five years later, and it doesn't look as good as good as it should, right? And uh, and, and and that, you know, that was what made us go into this three D T P carbon, where you have a completely black case, you know, through and through, right? Like like ceramic, also, right? Yeah, I think this is so interesting to hear you talk about this because none of this would have really been a reality for you if you hadn't been doing this as long, right? Because the tendency of any mm. young entrepreneur is to go fast, assume that their products are great, um, and you know to really just push things out. Now, what I'm hearing is someone who has seen a lot of watches potentially come back for reasons that you want to avoid are recognizing that Consumers want reliability uh, above else, and they sort of, you know, it's a, it's a really good thing to learn from your mistakes and make these iterative improvements that never would have happened if you didn't get to see the watches coming back. And it's given you sort of a newfound sense of the importance of longevity. And again, that's important because you start the company, you think the short term, but to maintain the company, you need to think the long term. And, you know, we're sort of out of time right now. I, I want to hear your final thoughts on longevity and thinking of the long term in terms of how important that is for this industry, 
to be in it for a while, to be stable, to have a good product? You know, what have you learned about long-term thinking that you feel is not only important, but also worth sharing? Yeah, I, 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 think it's, uh, I think it's incredibly important, right? And uh, not, not only for ourselves, but for, for our customers. And, 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 and when I go back, you know, and, and I think, you know, quite a few of other independent watch brands, they will recognize this, right? That there were times <clears throat> when you thought, shit, you know, <laughs> you know, will we get through this? But then you think, well, hang on a moment, right? We got thousands of customers out there, right? Who we are convinced they should wear our pieces. And we can't just let them go, right? We, we, it's our responsibility to, to be here also, even if it's tough, right? And, and then, you know, as most things in life, you know, you, you know, it passes and, you know, things become good again. Um, but, but, but I think the longevity of it and also, to have that, what I would call a sustainable business, is really, really key to this. You, I, I mean, some people can, of course, they can go out, you know, arm swinging, and we do this and we do that, da 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 da, and it's all good and fun. But it's not so great, I think, if five, to ten, or twenty years later, right, people take a, a watch off their drawer and say, you know, "What the hell is this?" Uh, you know, and, and and at least I mean, that's that. I think that's where my I mean, I, okay, call it conscience comes in. Um, and, 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 and yeah, so I guess that's my point. I mean, longevity is really important for the customer's point of view and also for, for our point of view. It takes 10, 20 years to learn this business, it, it, just to be even moderately good at it. This is why people respect the old Maisons, right? I, uh, absolutely. And I, and I tell you, whenever we see a customer, and, and and I'm there, and they take off, you know, a, you know, super. It may be a you know, Vachon Constantine or an AP or Patek or whatever it is, right? And I look at it, and and I see them looking at our watches, and 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 are willing to to wear it, right? And, you know, I'm you know, I'm somewhat honored, right? Because that that, that means something. It is. Um, it is and, very and flattering. I don't think that, seeing yeah. your watches in the wild. Yeah, and I don't think that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I don't think that uh, that should be taken lightly, right? That is um, that is always the the greatest honor is when your products are put alongside uh, other products which you respect and aspire to, and people treat them the same. Um, it is a wonderful but, feeling. By the by, by the client. Yes, of course, by the client. When when you see not, you see them not treating by the retailer, not by you know you know comparison between six models and all we like good or right, but actually by the client who comes in and they take off what they're wearing currently, put on, you know, say yeah, I like that, right? And you know, boom, boom, boom. Okay, thank you. You are we're out of time, but I want to congratulate you again on the uh, the fifteenth anniversary of the first release and the twenty year anniversary of the company. Uh, just remind everyone where they can learn more about Linda Verdelin. Thank you so much, Will. They can learn more about Linda Verdelin at our website, at our Instagram accounts, by speaking to me or any of our people. Thank you. This has been the Superlative Podcast with my guest, Jorn <laughs> Verdelin. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jorn. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.